and welcome to the Vineyard Northwest podcast. At Vineyard Northwest, we aim to be a culture that welcomes heaven to earth by raising up world-changing kingdom leaders. We hope you enjoy this message by one of our executive pastors, Luke Hazelmeyer, on God's gift of purpose. We're going to continue our series, Salt of the Earth. And kind of like the, one of the main passages for this series is Matthew 5.13. Let's start just by reading that afresh. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. Oh, I didn't know you were going to read it with me, but... <laughs> we could, let's do that, sorry. I see how my phrasing led you to believe that. But let's do it now, maybe it's what the Lord's doing. Let's read it together. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You see, Jesus is using a metaphor here to paint a spiritual truth. There is useful salt and there is unuseful salt. Useful salt flavors that which is bland. If you have a bland meal, a bland soup, you need more flavor, you add salt, and then you have flavor. Unuseful salt is bland itself. Useful salt flavors that which is bland. Unuseful salt is bland itself. And what that means is no matter how much salt you add, it's not going to flavor anything. And the scary truth of that is what Jesus is effectually saying is that for some Christians, no matter how many of them you add to a situation in the world, God's kingdom is not going to come. Why? Because they have lost their ability to season or their ability to flavor. They've lost their saltiness. Now, we as followers of Jesus, um, we are called to flavor the world in this way. We're called to bring the love, the power, the joy, the humility of Jesus into the broken situations and to the broken people of the world and see them experience God's redemption in their lives and in the lives of the people around them. And so it's a really important task that we have. We need to make sure that we as Christians are salty. And... Um, because God is so serious about this mission for us to flavor the world, to bring Jesus to the world, he is always judging our saltiness. He's always judging whether we are impacting the world around us or we're just kind of another lost voice. Whether we're actually bringing flavoring or we're just as bland, just as stuck in the dysfunction of the world as the world. Now, before we go any further, I really, really want to clarify the term judgment because this word has so many preconceived notions that come along with it, and I want us to be viewing the word judgment rightly. So real quick, just take a second. What is the first image that comes to mind when you hear the word judgment? Is it, yes, I heard some people say a courtroom, or maybe when you hear judgment, you think of someone 
declaring something bad about you. And you're feeling judged. Guilt, it can be a pronunciation of guilt over you. A light, Van said a lightning bolt. So all of those are negative, right? All of those have to do with punishment, guilt, and shame. But hear me right now. The purest definition of the word judgment in the Bible is not guilt. It's not shame. It's not condemnation. It's not punishment. It's assessment. The purest biblical definition of the word judgment is assessment. And what does it mean to assess something? It means to say, okay, I'm going to assess this thing. And then here's what's good about it. Here's what's broken about it. Here's what is powerful about it. Here's what's weak about it. It's just a pure assessment. And so judgment is good and bad. It's not just negative. It's not just calling, it's not just criticism. It's also affirmation and recognition. When God says to you, good job uh, loving that person today. That's God's judgment. He's assessing something you did and judging it good. Judgment, we need to um, divorce punishment and judgment from each other. They, they do go hand in hand, especially in the Old Testament. They go hand in hand sometimes, but not all the time. And in the new covenant, you know, quick aside, aren't you glad to be on the right side of the cross? <laughs> you know, um, aren't you glad to be in a covenant where all of your sins past, present, and future have already been dealt with. And because they've been dealt with, God will never punish you for them. And that's the point I want to make, is that for anyone who is in Christ, anyone who's been born again, anyone who has said yes to Jesus, God will not judge you through punishment. God is not going to use punishment to judge you. He's going to judge you in order to increase your saltiness. He's gonna judge you in order to discipline you and to prune you. Before we go any farther into that, let's take a second and look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul speaks to this topic of judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is kind of what I started to say, that when God judges the church, he's not judging for the sake of punishment, he's judging for the sake of discipline. And again, let's pause. For, I know for a lot of you, the word discipline carries all of those same negative connotations as the word judgment. But maybe, maybe discipline for you was only ever punishment, Growing up, or maybe you think about jobs where you're disciplined, it's just punishment. But God's discipline is not just punishment. God's discipline is doing something intentional to help you grow, to help you heal, to help you thrive. His discipline is guiding you and teaching you. It's not just punishing you because you did something wrong. So God judges the church for the sake of discipline. Another word for discipline is, how many of you have heard the word pruning in the Bible before or heard, just heard of the concept pruning ever in your life? 
So if you don't know what pruning is, um, I can remember being a kid and I hated pruning because I had to prune the tomato plants that my grandpa and my mom were growing. And it's not that it was that hard of work, it's just hot. And if you know anything about working on like a big garden, you know, your arms rub up against the corn stalks and all of a sudden they're itchy. And anyways, so, <clears throat> so I had the job of pruning tomato plants as a kid. And here's what that looked like. When a tomato plant grows, there's all these different branches that grow with it and bear fruit, except there are these weird little renegade branches that kind of grow out of the crooks of the tomato plants that will never bear fruit. They literally just take nutrients and they grow. They can grow to be pretty long, but they won't ever bear fruit. And they're pretty easy to spot because of where you find them on the plant. And so pruning a tomato plant is cutting off those, we call them suckers, cutting off those suckers in order to get the nutrients that the plant is getting from the sun and the soil and the water to, for the purpose of producing fruit. And so when God prunes you, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, this thing that is attached to you is not going to help you bear fruit. It's not going to make you more loving. It's not going to make you more humble. I'm going to cut it off so we can redirect that energy elsewhere. Pruning. That's what, and that's, that's really a good picture of what the discipline of the Lord is. So let's talk about this practically. Um, so God judges the church. You know, God, it's not just that he judges us every once in a while. He is literally always aware, because he's God, he is always aware of all of the good that's in my heart and my mind and all of the brokenness that's in my heart and my mind. He's aware of it all. He is always able to see it. Now, quick aside, the fact that I have brokenness in my heart and brokenness in my thinking does not mean that I am broken, okay? It does not mean that, just because I have brokenness does not mean that I am broken. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, or because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that behold, you are a new creation. The old is what? gone, right? So the brokenness would be included in the old, right? And if the old is gone and the brokenness is included in the old, the brokenness is gone too. It's gone from my nature. It's gone from my identity. But I still can have broken thinking. I can be just kind of like I could be a uh, human being that used to think I was a dog and Now I know that I'm not a dog, but I still sometimes act like a dog. Terrible example, but hopefully you get the point. Okay, let's move on from that. So um, I say, just quick, real quick. I say that because one time I was teaching on identity and I had someone come up on stage and pretend to be a dog and it was funny, but I don't have time to do that. So, okay. So God's always aware of the good and he's always aware of the broken thinking and the broken kind of like heart motives that we have. And the thing about our thinking and our heart, our, our, our motives and our thinking is that they're not like segmented into like wholly distinct categories. What I mean by that is it's not like there's a part of my thinking that is totally good and then a part of it that is totally evil. It's not like if I have a motive to do something, um, 
It's usually a mixture is what I'm trying to get to. Usually there's a mixture of good and a mixture of brokenness in our, think, in our thought patterns, in our heart. Like for example, um, when I was 22, I got the chance as an intern at Vineyard Tri-County to lead this high school student leadership team. And as an intern before that, I had mainly done intern, like stereotypical intern tasks, but then about nine months in, I got the privilege and I was so excited to get to lead the student leadership team. And so I came into that and that was really like one of my first big leadership ventures. I had done some small group stuff before that, but this ended up being like 30 kids. And so I went into it with so much passion and, and fire and conviction for what I felt like good leadership would look like. And the group really prospered. But as I look back at where some of that motivation was coming from for me to lead, part of my motivation in leading the way I was leading actually came from bitterness that I had through experiences I'd had with former people that had led me. Maybe you can relate before where it's like, that person treated me this way, so I'm gonna use that as fuel to treat these people the opposite way. Now that can sound like it's a good thing. That can sound like that's a holy and a righteous thing that we should all be doing that. But when we allow bitterness to stay in our hearts, yeah, it can, I believe it can be used for righteous passion for a little while, but eventually that bitterness is gonna sour our hearts. That if we let that bitterness towards other people stay there, it's gonna lead us to places that we don't wanna go. And so, um, and so I had a mixture of my, my motives for leading were mixed. There was a lot of good, then there was a little bit of bitter and a little bit of, of bad. And God is aware, he was aware of all of that the whole time. And so what God does is he takes our motives or he takes our thoughts and he judges them, meaning he separates like what was pure and good from what is broken. He separates what is pure, good, healthy, righteous passion from passion that is coming from a place of bitterness. And then his goal in doing that is he wants to obviously remove this kind of like dead weight or this, this part that's gonna hurt us in the long run and then really accentuate and grow what is good and useful in us. And I think that God really started speaking to me about that early on. Like I think probably a year or two into leading, God started highlighting, hey, don't be a leader that gets all of your passion from anger towards other leaders that have failed you. That's not gonna result in something good. And so I think he started speaking to me about that very early on in ministry, but I didn't, I didn't actually get it and repent of it for six years. And I think the reason it took me so long was because if you know anything about my story, I don't have time to go into all of it. I experienced a lot of ministry success really early on in my ministry career. Like Will and I um, accidentally started young adult ministry. It blew up, you know, several thousand people came through it and it's over the course of a few years. Um, it was just amazing, powerful time in my life. Wish I could go into it more. But because I was experiencing this success of ministry, I think I just kind of felt like, you know what? Um, 
what I'm doing must be perfect. (laughs) I think it's probably how I thought. Um, What I'm doing must be like amazing and doesn't need to be shaped and nuanced and molded. And so I think that actually kept me from, um, from being disciplined and pruned by God. And so let's just let this be a reminder to all of us that if you're in a season right now where you're thriving in something, still make sure to be intentional about being open to the voice of the Lord for how you can be shaped and disciplined and pruned. And so obviously, like in my case, um, God just speaking to me wasn't quite enough to get through to me. You know, I probably heard messages about that could have helped me, that didn't quite help me the way they needed to. I probably sang worship songs that could have helped me, but obviously just God interacting with me in that way was not getting through to me. So what does God do when he wants to judge you in order to prune you, but him speaking to you isn't getting through to you? This is where God, according to his timing, will use the natural adversity we face in life to bring healing and growth to our areas of brokenness. Notice I didn't say cause. He will use, I'm not saying he'll cause them, but he will use the hard things we go through in life in order to grow us. And that's exactly how I learned the lesson. He probably, he might've spoken it to me prophetically a hundred times, but it wasn't until I had to go through something hard that I actually learned the lesson I needed to learn. Now, as a quick caveat, God can't, I said he isn't the cause. And I do believe that most of the time, the hard stuff we go through in life, God is not causing it, he's using it. But he can, I don't wanna just like paint this theological picture that I don't think is totally true. God can sometimes be the cause of adversity in our life. But again, because we're on the better side of the cross, like we talked about before, there are some kinds of adversity I am confident that we can be sure God never is the cause of. And in order to, just to give you something quick to kind of have a litmus test, like I want you all to imagine a parent that is absolutely in love with their kids. And now I want you to imagine that that parent is perfect, okay? If you can imagine that parent doing something, causing something hard to that kid, Whatever it is that you can imagine, that's probably what God will do. And whatever you can't imagine that parent doing, that's probably what God won't do. So you know what? God might keep you awake all night. He might do that. He might cause that on you in order to prune you or to discipline you. But God's not gonna like cut off your arm or, you know, cause you to be in a car accident or something like If a perfect, loving human parent wouldn't do that, how could we say God would do that? And so that's just a real quick thing. If you want more like theology or scripture on like the goodness of God, um, first off, take School of Kingdom Ministry. You'll get it there. Secondly, you can email me at wilson at (laughs) vcnw.org. If that one doesn't work, try sarah at (laughs) vcnw.org. You'll get through to me. Okay. So six years later, I finally realized the lesson God was teaching me. 
And the reason I learned it is that the success that I was so proud of, that was so exciting, that um, I was kind of addicted to, came to a screeching halt. And all of a sudden, I couldn't grow a ministry like I used to. I couldn't get people to come to the events I was doing like I used to. And I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought so hard to keep that success, but eventually learned the lesson that, oh, the reason I hit a cap on what I was able to do is that the growth that, were out, that was required in me, I had been resisting. You see, God will do a certain measure of kingdom activity through you, but then there's gonna be, you're gonna be required to have new growth and able to get to new kingdom levels. And, and so um, six years later, I finally realized God was teaching me and he, and I, I really did, I repented of that bitterness toward other leaders. I forgave them from my heart. I blessed them and honored them and, and prayed for them. Um, and I'm not saying I'm perfect there, but I've experienced a ton of freedom from that. And I'll tell you what, it is just, it is so much more, um, it's hard to put words to it. It's just so much better to lead from a place of like, Passion that comes from my love for God, not my anger towards people. It's just so much better that way. So all of that, this, hopefully you have a picture now of what kind of God's judging to pruning process looks like. This is what God's process is for growing us. This is how we continue to be the salt of the earth. If we wanna be people that actually impact the world around us, that actually show Jesus to the world around us, then we should allow God to judge us. And why is he judging us? To prune us. So with all that said, I really believe, and it's not just me, um, our whole teaching team, this is why we're doing this series, we really believe that God is judging the church right now. That we're actually in a time where God is examining the saltiness of the church, assessing it, judging it, and going to prune a lot of things in order to restore it. Because I think we have lost a little bit of our ability to impact the world in recent times. And there's a lot that goes into that. But one thing I wanna highlight is the biblical command to love our enemies. I believe God is judging us right now on our ability to love our enemies. And I believe he's doing that because in pruning and disciplining us to show where we've had hatred towards our enemies and to cut, allow God, if we allow God to cut that off, we're actually going to be able to impact the world that we're, as we're called to. So let's talk a little bit about enemy love. Okay, this com- in case you don't believe me that Jesus said it, let's read Matthew 5, 43 through 46. Here's Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What he's saying there is that God loves his enemies. Uh, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do 
the same. In another place where it's even more pointed, Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are abusive to you. Another place, I'm not gonna read it, Romans 12. Paul says, hey, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So there's not really any way around it. Like we are called, we are commanded to love our enemies. And it's hard. But let's talk a little bit about how we can step into that more. Um, So first off, who is my enemy? As the Jesus in this, in those two passages I read, he is talking to a group of Jews. And so I think for us to really understand what he was talking about, we should ask, we should look, take a look at who were the enemies of the Jews, because that can kind of give us more insight into who we are called to love in present day 2021. So first, the Jews were enemies with the Romans. Secondly, they were enemies with the Samaritans. And third, they were enemies with the religious leaders or the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what we're gonna do for the rest of our time, let's take a look at um, the Romans, who that would be for us today, how we can love them better. Same thing for Samaritans, same thing for Pharisees and Sadducees. So starting with the Romans, these are the enemies who are against you or who oppress you. So some examples, terrorists would, be, would fall into this category. Uh, sometimes politicians, um, an angry neighbor. Growing up, we had one neighbor that was like determined to get my, me and my siblings arrested because she thought that we shot her cat with a BB gun. We didn't. <laughs> Although I'm not saying that would be totally outside the realm of possibility for me and my brothers, but we didn't do it. Uh, maybe a, a bully, a bully, um, someone bullying you or you know, a bully could be someone who is against you or oppresses you. And so I think God is asking the church a bunch of things about loving our enemies. Here's the first one. God is asking the church if they'll love all of their enemies. This is why I started with terrorists because like I wanted just to go right for the jugular. Like, will we take it seriously enough to somehow find a way in our hearts to have love for terrorists, for people that are literally trying to kill us and kill people? Um, And I bring that up because I do think it's easy to read passages like this and be like, well, I get it that I'm supposed to love my enemies, but certainly Jesus doesn't mean that enemy. Like I get it, I'm supposed to love all of these enemies, but he can't mean I'm supposed to love this enemy. And if that's what you think, um, here's what I think God's response is. Can you throw up that picture? There's another office bone for all of you that love the office. Um, Did you know that Jesus is madly in love with every member of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and every other terroristic organization in the world? And if the God that we serve is madly in love with them, yet we look into our own hearts and we only see hatred for them, we're not thinking or loving like God. 
you know what is to really scary truth? We're actually thinking and loving more like them. Will we love all of our enemies? By the way, um, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy 1, he talks about how he was a violent aggressor towards the church before coming to know Jesus. If you know what he actually did, he was a terrorist. And so how many of us in looking at the Apostle Paul five minutes before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus would have wished death upon him? I know that's been me sometimes. But the Apostle Paul, he met Jesus five minutes later and he went on to be the person who is the most responsible for you sitting in this room right now, aside from Jesus. Like no one else caused the gospel to go as far into the world as it has than the Apostle Paul. So, um, you know, I'm not saying a bunch, there's a lot of stuff I'm not saying right now. So if you are thinking something and you're like, how can Luke be saying this? I'm probably not saying that. Um, Really what it comes down to is this. In my heart, what do I want more for a terrorist? For them to be punished for their crimes or born again? What do I want more for a bully? For them to, you know, get theirs or to be born again? And so I want to look in my heart and find that. And if I find that, I am a big step closer to loving my enemies in the way that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Uh, Real quick, here's what I'm not saying, just two things. I'm not saying we should overlook or not stand against evil. And I'm not saying that sometimes this teaching can get twisted into telling people who are in abusive relationships that they need to uh, pursue continued interaction with their abusers. I'm definitely not saying that. Let's move on to the Samaritans. The Samaritans are those who offend you or disgust you. If you know anything about the Samaritans, they were kind of like a half-breed Jewish and Gentile um, person, and the Jews hated them for that. So who offends you or who disgusts you right now? If you need some help, I have a list here of things. So (laughs) let me read it. Those who might offend you or disgust you, liberals, conservatives, progressive Christians, fundamentalist Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, LGBTQ people, anti-vaxxers, pro-vaxxers, government trusters, government critics, media trusters, conspiracy theorists, frustrating relatives, and annoying coworkers. (laughs) Does anybody need me to keep going? Have you found someone you're offended by or disgusted with yet? (laughs) Second thing, God is asking the church if not just in behavior, but from their hearts, they'll love their enemies. And I think this is especially important with the kinds of people that I just read off right now. You see, 1 John 3, Bible says, don't just love people in words, but love them in actions and in truth, which means don't just Um, pay lip service and like pretend to love them, but actually love them. Like actually love them from their hearts. We don't have time to go into it, but in uh, Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23, Paul basically makes this crazy statement. He says, as you're resisting sin, if you figure out little mechanisms and like 
actions that can help you not sin, those are actually of no value in addressing the sinful desires in your heart. And basically, the point he's getting across is, it's not enough just to control your behavior. It's not enough just to not cuss someone out you disagree with on Facebook. It's not enough just you, we actually have to love them from our hearts. Like we actually have to find that desire in us that causes us to be so offended and so disgusted with them and take that to the Lord. An example, there was a, um, I had a friend years ago who went to a different church and the pastor of that church, um, my friend was considering, he was, he was a passionate, solid Christian. My friend was considering dating um, this girl who like was an atheist and didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And he told me he was gonna go ask his pastor about it. I was like, oh, awesome. And so he went and asked his pastor and his pastor told him he thought it was a good idea. And then years later, this guy's not following the Lord anymore. And a lot of it had to do with that. And you know what? For the longest time, I had hate in my heart towards that pastor because of, um, of what he did and because of just how different, I guess, you know, we see Christianity and we see the will of God. And so um, I never like said anything to him, but the hate was still there. So if we really wanna love our enemies, we, it's not enough just to not say anything. If you never cuss someone out, but you live your whole life with hatred towards your enemies in your life, I don't think you're really taking what Jesus said the way it was supposed to be taken. And so um, really what we just, we, we, let's love them from our hearts, not just our words. Um, next, God is asking the church to stop letting hatred for enemies ruin its witness for the gospel. So we're not gonna read it. Second Timothy 2, Paul says, hey, quit wrangling over words because it does no good and only ruins those who are listening. How many people have been ruined or pushed away from God based on debates I've gotten with on Facebook or social media? Read that one for yourself later if you want. Um, what I'm not saying here, I'm not saying disagreeing is wrong. I'm not saying that loving your enemies means being okay with everything they believe. Um, but I am saying love them. Lastly, the Pharisees, these are people who harm or ostracize those who you care about. And I'll tell you what, this is the group of people that I have the most tr trouble loving. You know, it's not so much terrorists as it is people who say they're Christians but are um, bullying with the Bible those I'm trying to reach with the gospel. My friends that don't believe in Jesus that I care about who are being pushed away by other people. Those are, the, those are the people I have the least mercy in my heart towards. Um, the example I gave earlier would fall into that with that pastor. Um, and last, last point I wanna make, God is asking the church to learn to disagree in gentleness and kindness. And I think this is especially important with the category of enemy I we're talking about right now. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul makes it real clear. Let's, let's, let's actually read that one. 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's easy for me to want to be very harsh, unkind, and impatient with people that harm those that I love. But that's not what I'm called to do. Would you stand with me? Father, give us the capacity to love our enemies the way that you're asking us to. We repent for all that we've done to diminish our ability to impact the world around us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.